It's the year 2020, and the church is still acting like it's 1982. That's the year we were born. And ten years into this gig, we are doing our best to help the church into the future. We are iPhone pastors for a typewriter church, and this is the Millennial Pastors Podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Pastors Podcast. My name is Eric Parker. And I'm Courtney Reedman Parker. So it's been a while. So uh, I guess we haven't made a podcast in about six weeks. Yeah. What happened there? Well, there's a good reason for that. Uh, Shortly after we recorded our last episode, I woke up one morning and half my face was numb and tingly and not moving all that well. Not concerning at all. Yeah, so I thought I was having a stroke, and you did too. Correct. So we went to urgent care. I got checked out, and thankfully I was not having a stroke. Or a brain tumor. But I was diagnosed with Bell's palsy, which is partial facial paralysis or idiopathic facial paralysis, which means my face stopped working for no obvious medical reason. Which uh, has meant that the last six weeks have been uh, a time of healing and recuperating, and I've been suffering from some pretty intense headaches, although those have subsided for a couple weeks now. But the biggest thing is uh, eating and talking (laughs) with food dribbling out of my mouth and uh, words also dribbling out of my mouth a little bit. But hopefully I'm able to speak and enunciate and articulate well enough to record podcasts and get back to work. So we're excited to be back. I offered to record on my own and he gave me the look. And if you don't know Eric, you can just imagine. He's giving it to me right now, too. It's so funny because my face doesn't actually work. (laughs) I don't know how I'm actually giving any looks. I have one look, the side grimace. We're glad that you're getting back to full health. I am too. It's good to be back here with all of you. So in today's episode, we're picking up where we left off with our hopes and dreams and longings for the the post-pandemic church. In our last episode, we started talking about our hopes and dreams for the church, and we left off talking about making space or holding space, not rushing back to the way we do things here, but instead holding space and taking time to discern how to structure ourselves for ministry together. We know that this is going to be hard for some because who are we if we don't have, and then you can just fill in the blank to the ministry or the group or whatever it is in your particular context that really probably should have been moved on from a while ago, but the idea of letting go of it was too painful or difficult or a sign of things changing for people. So we keep carrying on even even though we know it's not really life-giving any longer. Yeah, it's hard to give up some of those things that we have thought have been so central to who we are as people of faith, who we are as communities of faith. And to just say, ah, we're not going to do that anymore is really tough. But we had this pandemic to say that for us, and now we have the opportunity to decide if we're going to say, are we going to do that again? Which is a much different question, and maybe one easily, more easily answered when we look at factors like, do enough people care to do this thing again? Is it life-giving for the community, or is it life-sucking and and soul-crushing to have to put on this thing that we thought was so central to who we are? Do we have the time and the energy for it, right? Is there the capacity? Are there the human resources and sometimes the financial resources for it, too? But I think for others, there, there will be a sense of relief, of release, that this idea of... Letting go um, will be balm for weary souls. Yeah, being able to let go of stuff so that we can make space for new stuff. And that's kind of where we ended last episode, talking about um, 
leaving the blank slate and not rushing back to everything that we did before, but but discerning carefully what we are going to begin again or begin anew. So you can, uh, if you want to hear more about that conversation, go back to the last episode. But we'll continue on with our next hope for the post-pandemic church. And that hope is that we speak more clearly to the issues of racism, sexism, climate change, economic injustice, and all those other things that are pressing issues of the day for our world. And particularly through this uh, year 2020 and through the pandemic, these issues, despite the global health crisis, have been at the forefront uh, with the, with the uh, killing of George Floyd in, in Minneapolis uh, last summer, with the fires in California and other climate issues, that these things have not gone away. In fact, they've been maybe amplified and we're more aware of them and aware that our world uh, needs some attention. And the church has a role in that to speak to these issues, to name them, and to and to address them. And I think we've been guilty of sometimes being on the sidelines in regards to these issues, or maybe uh, trying to stay neutral as they are divisive at times, as they do sometimes put people off. People haven't been as interested and ready to talk about them. Church has been perceived to be a safe place, a place where we don't have to deal with those issues, talk about those issues. We can just go and be comfortable. I think sometimes it's helpful, too, to be reminded that that while there are going to be people for whom having these conversations are going to be difficult or even off-putting or may think that there is no place for fill-in-the-blank, um, from the pulpit or in churches, that there are a whole host of others who are longing to hear from faith leaders and from the church what what our faith has to say about about these matters. And continually, I hear from members, particularly now as I have been in a new call for the last year. So I guess my timeline for calling in a new call is running out, but who who will come to me after a Sunday service and say, you don't know this, but we have a family member who is transgender. And so when you speak to speak to the fact that God calls all people beloved, and name that that includes people who are transgender, people who are two-spirited, people who don't look or act like us, that that, that, me- that means something to people. Um, and I, I think it's really important to remind ourselves of that, that for as much as we might hear from people that there's no place for this, or this is really upsetting, or I'm going to leave the church if we get political or too liberal or too this or too that, that there are just as many, if not more people who are longing, who are longing to hear that God loves them, that God cares about the environment, that God cares about economic injustice, that God cares about matters of injustice to our indigenous peoples yeah i remember i remember when i first started ministry um that there were there was sort of this running joke among some my colleagues back in alberta we served in smaller rural communities that are both were both uh capital c conservative as in uh supportive of the conservative party but also small c conservative people who who valued you know the status quo and staying the same but there was always this commentary that so many families had this son or daughter living in Toronto, which was usually code language for my uh, my gay son or my gay daughter. <laughs> and they didn't really want to sort of share that. But it was a way of speaking about the fact that these realities were entering into our lives. And I know that as our denomination started talking about human sexuality, same-sex marriage, Started talking about uh, the ordination of of people from the LGBTQ 
2SIA plus community, um, that that the attitudes were changing because because people were experiencing were ha- had relatives, family members who were part of this community and wanted to know how did how did they fit within faith within the church and my my first congregation when we talked about what we would do about same sex marriage, the conversation began with, well, that's not how I was taught growing up. That's not how my parents and grandparents would have thought we should be doing in the church. But then they, then without any prompting from me, said, but what if one of our family came? What if one of our kids came with their partner and asked to be married? We would probably at that time say it's okay. And it was such a, a fascinating discussion to watch that once, one, once um, this, the concern was personalized, people were able to emphasize a lot more. And, and these days, um, what I think is really interesting is that I hear the same conversation with the same sort of grandparents, white, middle-class grandparents, who are now talking about their, their, I have a grandson, I have a granddaughter who is trans, right? And it's so interesting how these how these experiences personalize and help people empathize with 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 this change that's happening in our society and this awareness that there are all kinds of people around us and when we don't actually take the time to speak about these issues that that people feel excluded they feel like the church has has made no place for them in the world. Well, and it's hard to find those intersections where our faith intersects with these other areas of our life and our world. And so to not talk about them, to not help people make those direct links to say, well, what might this look like? What do we hear God saying? How does our faith inform how we might understand this or begin to understand this in a way for people to at least open the the door or, or the window of the possibility that there are there are so many um there are so many possibilities for how we can approach anything and that just because we were taught one way of thinking or believing doesn't mean that's the only way or the right way that there is a whole spectrum of how we can of how we can um come to understand God and one another. And that what we think, you know, Scripture and the Bible and what God might say about something might not always actually be the truth or the right thing. That sometimes these, these attitudes and prejudices or feelings about, about, about things that we think are biblical, we think are from God, are actually not. And that as we explore scripture and faith deeper, when we discover actually God feels quite differently than we were taught, and the scripture speaks to these issues quite differently than we were initially told. You mean I don't know exactly what God thinks about every issue or any issue? Yeah, it's shocking. I mean, I remember, I remember when, in 2015, um, when the the very tragic um, photo of Alan Kurdi, that young Syrian refugee, uh, washing up on the beaches of Turkey, was circulated around the world. It, it struck me. It struck me um, quite profoundly. We had a we had a son that was pretty close in age to Alan, and it also struck me when we discovered that Alan had family in Canada, and so it was a Canadian story as much as it was a global story. And so I started preaching about it. I started preaching in my sermons. I told stories. I talked about refugees. I talked about the crisis. And I didn't really have a goal. I didn't wasn't thinking about something that the congregation needed to do. But it wasn't long before uh, Canada started accepting Syrian refugees, and so many churches across the country were were forming committees and groups to sponsor refugees. And our congregation, which I didn't expect, all of a sudden had people looking to join the group from our from the small town that the church was located in to sponsor refugees. And people told me, because I kept on preaching about refugees, that they, they thought maybe we should be a part of this. And it wasn't my intention to, to change people's minds or to make them do something like this, but it was to 
to raise up this issue that was so in front of us on the news every day and to connect it to our faith, to connect it to what God might be saying to this issue, because that's an important question for Christians to ask. And so it was really amazing to see that when you simply are aware of what's happening in the world as a preacher, that to name it and to connect it to our faith really opens people's minds to the ways in which they can be a part of it. And they will, and people will come up with incredible ideas about how to get involved and how to do something about these issues which are changing our world all around us. Absolutely. And I think this idea of, um, you know, the, the pastor not being political and differentiating, right, between being political and being partisan, that there, that there is, that there is a, a need for politics, that there is a need for the pastoral, that there is a need for the prophetic, and those aren't mutually exclusive. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, I didn't, I didn't think I would bring up this uh, experience I've had this week, but maybe it's kind of relevant and, uh, and somewhat ties into our next point, which is uh, that we also remember and recommit with clarity to our foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, and so this week um, we've had in Winnipeg uh, some experiences with congregations. Oh, did something happen this week in Winnipeg? There were some churches in the city who were objecting to public health orders, to pandemic restrictions. Which, Not just objecting, they were in defiance. In defiance, bringing, getting ticketed, breaking them. And I completely sympathize that these, these pandemic restrictions are extreme. We have some of the most extreme pandemic restrictions in the country right now because we have High caseloads, our hospitals are full, our healthcare system is right at the breaking point. And, and that's what our, our public health officials are telling us. That's what our elected leaders are telling us. And yet there's been a few churches um, standing up in the name of some perceived sense of religious freedom, saying that they need to continue to gather to worship and to gather in different ways. Some have been um, gathering in person. Some have been driving in in person. And so um, after a number of things, there was um, health orders broken, tickets issued, even a court battle. And that was the judge ruled against the congregation's attempt to get an injunction. I wrote an open letter um, saying that, you know, as people of faith, we should not be fighting against public health orders, but working with public health orders, whatever they might be in this case, because they are not restricting our right to believe what we believe or pray the way we pray. They are temporarily restricting the way in which we can gather. And not all gatherings, just in a particular gathering, in-person, or in this case, drive-in gatherings. When we can still gather online, we can still pray in our households. There's still lots of opportunities to practice our faith. And yet the rhetoric had been that people of faith, church communities, are objecting to public health orders. They wrote an open letter saying that this is not the only narrative, the one that had been in the media, but instead that there are many leaders of faith who actually want to support the public health efforts to care for our community, to stop the spread of the pandemic, and to, and to um, do our part to care for our community. And I wrote the letter. And I really thought that there would only be a few of us, a few of our colleagues who said, hey, good job, good for speaking out. There might be a few members of congregations that said, thanks, thanks, Pastor, for writing that. I didn't expect that it would go as viral as it did. And uh, it kind of got myself in a little bit of trouble uh, with kind of, I guess it ignited a bit of a firestorm of conversation online in our city. It got a, a few media interviews um, and lots of comments and lots of responses. But, you know, over a hundred faith leaders signed on to the letter from both within Manitoba and outside Manitoba. And, and in my mind, and my hope was that, that it was um, 
like the last one, speaking to those issues that are before us, speaking to issues of injustice, but also speaking clearly about our commitment to the gospel, which is a commitment to care love for one another, that as Jesus has first loved us, as Jesus has first uh, gone before us with grace and mercy and enacted our salvation, that we are able to then turn around and care for the world, not being concerned about about our own salvation or having to work it out, but instead being able to to love love our neighbors and care for them. And so the church, I think, needs to continue that work. And that was the that was a lot of the responses I got from church people. Thank you for speaking out. Thank you for saying that. From church people and non-church people wanting to hear that message coming from faith leaders. I'm going to stop you right there because I think most people listening to this podcast hear that we also remember and recommit with clarity to our foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, this is very churchy, pastory language and seems like a no-brainer, right? Well, of course, of course we're about the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So apart from your open letter, right, what are some ways that that will look like in this post-pandemic church of recommitting to the gospel in our daily lives, in our ministries? Yeah, actually, I think the open letter is maybe one specific in-time example. But the bigger issue, I think, for a lot of congregations is that we spent a lot of time maintaining our sort of institutional status, that we have spent time um, you know, keeping our buildings open, keeping our programs running, keeping our staff paid. And it's it has, you know, turned churches a little bit into community clubs or community club-like, and that we sometimes forget the re- whole reason that we actually exist in the first place, which is that central proclamation of the gospel, where both uh, our community, our church congregation, and our broader world and so it's a really important thing that, that this is an opportunity for us to to refocus on that, to look back at why do why are we here? What are we all about? What is what is our purpose for existing? And I think um, this is an opportunity to to remember that, to to recommit to that, and to make that central going forward. The Millennial Pastors Podcast is made possible by a grant from the Manitoba Northwestern Ontario Synod of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in Canada. The Manitoba Northwestern Ontario, or MNO Synod, is one of five synods of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in Canada, or ELCIC. The synod covers 54 congregations in Manitoba and Northwestern Ontario, from Brandon in the west to Thunder Bay in the east from Morris on the U.S. border to Thompson, bordering on Canada's north. The MNO Synod has a baptized membership of 17,000 people headquartered in Winnipeg, Manitoba. The Synod serves 54 congregations through the Ministry of the Bishop's Office and working in the areas of youth and young adult ministry, missions, outdoor ministry, social justice, ecumenical relations, stewardship, and guiding ordained ministers and pastors through call processes. The MNO Synod can be found online at mnosynod.org and on Facebook and Instagram. Check them out if you want to find a congregation in the MNO or if you want to know more about their work. I hear if you call the office, you can just talk to Bishop Jason. So let's continue with point number eight. What's next? What's our next dream? What do we hope for? Our next dream is that we stop wishing for the young people to come back, but recognize that we will not be young again. Is that like a jab at the fact that we're inching towards 40 every day? I'm I'm several years from 40 still. Several. All right. So what should our ministry be focused on if it's not getting the young people back? Well, I think it should be focused on who we are rather than not what we used to be. 
um, if you look at some demographic data, people in Canada and people in the U.S. are old. I think in Canada, at least, half of us are over the age of 50. Burn. Well. <laughs> this is why you get in hot water. Sure. This is why I get... I get right. 60 <laughs> is the new 30. I'm sorry, everybody. We are a nation full of young people. We're basically babies. We're just like a church of babies, a nation of babies. I think that it is a, a challenge. I'll call it a challenge for people for whom when they remember their formation in the communities of faith where they have rooted themselves for many people, for many of the people that I have been called to serve, they've been members in these faith communities for decades and remember when they started attending, when the church was, for many of the churches that I have served, have been mission congregations. So they were invited to come or they had um, friends who were attending and were brought in that way. And their, their lives were formed and informed in and through these communities with other families who have become near and dear friends out, outside of church. And so when they think about, and you've talked about this too, Eric, when they think about, you know, where are all the young people? You have made this joke. They're really saying like, we, <laughs> we want to be young again. And I think there is truth in that in the sense of, Time just keeps marching on and all of a sudden you look around and the the people that used to be the young parents now <laughs> are the grandparents or have the kids in university or are bringing their families to church, right? And there's this, uh, again, back to this sense of sadness and grief at what was and is no longer, and trying to make sense of that. Absolutely. You know, I think in, in, in the early 60s, the average family had 4.2 kids, which meant that it, take, it took uh, one family to, to, <laughs> to equal four, four empty nest households. And so the reality is, you know, if you had essentially an even distribution of households, even if you know, half your households were empty nesters. You still had way more kids because sure. because average family had four kids. But these days, you know, you have um, one point seven or something, one point six in Canada. It's you know less than two. Right. So you have more empty nesters mm -hmm. and fewer young families, and then fewer children in those young families. So the reality is, if you have you know, a 50-50 split these days, um, uh, or you don't have a 50-50 split, but, it, but you have a situation where the best a church can do probably is to have one third of your, your families be, you know, uh, families with kids and two thirds are probably empty nest households just to match demographics, just to assume that you are matching Canadian demographics. So the reality is, is that our churches are going to look like they are gray-haired. They're going to look like they're aging when all they are is matching who we are as Canadians. It's not some failure of bringing, bringing the young people back or keeping the young people in. It's, it's more the fact that we're living longer and we're, we're aging together and there's just fewer young people. It has come as a shock and surprise to most congregations that I have served when I begin ministry with them and hear about how few families they have, and I consistently look around and say, I'm not sure why you think that, because from my perspective, you have a very vibrant community, and, and what, I would, what I would say is, an, I don't want to say adequate, but a representative number of young families based on Canadian demographics. Absolutely. Right. That, that 
that we reflect who we are. Churches often reflect who we are. And and we get really upset about that. So I wonder what that says about how we just feel about our society in general, you know. Sure. But I also think that part of the challenge for the church is that we don't really make it easy for young families to join or participate in our churches. And I'll and there's a there's a number of reasons for that. And I mean people who are new to the church specifically um, or new to our communities. And I will never forget my first Christmas in my first call. And I was coming into my first of three Christmas Eve services. I had started in August, so I had been there for a number of months. And I walked out from my office and through the narthex to go into the sanctuary and it was a buzz and there were people and you could see that people were entering and they were they were recognizing one another and I later learned that it was the same people who would come year after year on Christmas Eve as is true in a lot of congregations and and like it was coming out of a loudspeaker one of the faithful matriarchs of the congregation who was at the front door greeting said well there used to be young people here but not anymore and i just wanted to have one of the floor tiles open up and suck me in because i thought why would you why would you say that <laughs> to people who are clearly young and with young families on what level do you think that's hospitable or welcoming or says to a young family this is the place that we want to come back to right it might be it might be a articulation of the truth as you understand it but it is also incredibly inhospitable it's basically saying <laughs> you don't actually belong right. here it wasn't wrong it wasn't wrong but mm -hmm. it certainly wasn't helpful no no not helpful at all and so i wonder what other ways congregations who do i think very much want young families to participate who want involvement who want to walk with families in their faith formation and in their faith development what we're doing unintentionally i don't think that there is any congregation or congregational member or pastor or deacon who is out there thinking like how can I totally sideline these people so they're not interested in coming back to our church? That's not what we're talking about. But I do think that there are things that churches are doing that are not helping young families, and in particular young families who haven't been connected to a particular congregation or to a congregation at all, connect in in ways that are life-changing both for those families who are finding connections and community, but also for the church, because to welcome in new families means that the, that the church and the system and the culture is likely going to change. Yeah. And I think it's a paradigm shift too, right? I think expecting that the way that young people are going to exist and be in our churches is going to be with huge Luther League youth group style style uh, groups you know we're gonna have this giant young adults group and the reality is is that those things are not coming back we're not we don't have there simply aren't enough uh young people there simply aren't enough young adults to have these giant youth groups that so many people remember from their youth you know if you're 67 and recently retired and looking at your church and seeing a lot of folks with gray hair and saying i wonder what our future is that actually mean that might mean that you need to join your youth group, right? That these things are going to have to be intergenerational, that the people who are going to connect with youth, with kids, with young adults at church are not other kids or other young adults or other youth, but it's going to be intergenerational. It's going to be a lot more uh, connecting across the generations. It's going to be different. So yeah, you might be 
might be 67 recently retired, and you're going to go to laser tag on Friday night to, to hang out with the youth. And they might think it's totally weird at first, but I guarantee if you go a couple times, you'll just become one of the group. You know, instead of hoping for a bunch of youth that you're going to send down to the, the, the basement of the church to be in their youth corner and say, we have youth, they're all down there, look at us, this is really great. Right? It's going to be a paradigm shift. It's going to be rethinking what it looks like to have young people in our churches again. Yeah, part of that paradigm shift, too, also includes working with other churches. And we're going to talk about this in a little bit. But this idea of, in my mind, my approach to pastoral ministry and congregational ministry has always been, I'm less concerned about where you go to church than I am about, you know, if you go to church and and how you find a community to connect into. And so if one of my youth or my young adults happens to find a connection with a different youth group, I don't see that as a loss for our congregation. I see that as an absolute win-win situation for everybody that 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 individual has been able to find a group of of people who might happen to be their peers to connect with. Um, and, and isn't that what we're about, right? Helping people establish connections, grow their faith, learn more about who God is and how God is active in, in their lives and in the world. And if that doesn't happen in our particular context, I'm, I'm I'm not I'm not going to worry about that. Um and and I think the other thing is that rather than focusing on what we don't have, right? Rather than focusing on the scarcity to be looking at what we do have in ministry. And so if what you have is a whole lot of gray hair, let's focus our ministry there because that's not unimportant right um and no matter what our age we have we have needs we have need to be in community we have need for connection we have need for need for further faith development and formation that doesn't that doesn't change and so i think sometimes rather than looking for what we don't have or trying to trying to create or have programs or ministry focus for things that aren't actually present um, is a way that we waste a lot of time and resources rather than looking around at what our context is, right? And what our reality is and saying, what are the needs of this community and how do we meet those needs? Right. If anything, the church needs to take issue with the retirement industry and, and get it out of people's minds that, you know, retirement is the chance to to go uh, spend your winters in Arizona playing pickleball in the uh, retirement community. But actually, we need you to be here at, the, at church um, and to stay close so that you can be part of our community. Well, sure, because, I mean, it's this idea that God is is for us and with us no matter how young or old we are, right? God doesn't just walk away once you hit Freedom 55 or whatever the Freedom number is anymore right or that you're somehow okay so why don't you tell us about uh, our next point so our next point is our hope our dream is could we care less Wow, that's quite hope for the church. Could we care less? <laughs> Could we care less? I'm going to print it on t-shirt. Earlier this week, our synod hosted a workshop called Leadership in Anxious Times. And the facilitator was a deacon from the ELCA by the name of Marianne Schwabe and I really appreciated her facilitation and the information that she provided, not just in the midst of a global pandemic, but I think at any time, conversations on uh, systems and anxious systems in particular is really helpful for congregations and for leaders and congregations. And one of one of her 
Marianne-isms, she called them, was the question, could we care less? And she was framing it from the standpoint of when you are in conversations with somebody or a system that is anxious and holding on to something to ask the question, could we, could you, could I care less about this particular thing, issue, idea? And it really struck me as such an important question as we start thinking about what are our priorities for ministry? What is the main thing? If we have this mantra, keep the main thing the main thing. What is the main thing? What are the pieces in our lives or in our ministries, in our church, that we invest in that take up actually way more time and energy, much more of our capacity than maybe they need to? Are we maybe using our resources and not just finances, but that's included, but our time and our energy and people in the most effective or efficient way? Are we caring too much about things? Right. There's, I think there's a lot of things in the life of a congregation. It's not just, not just the points of tension and conflict, but there's a lot of things that we care a whole lot about. That, it, that the only the real the only reason we are caring about them is because we care about them, right? That we there's not actually a good reason to care. It's not because they're necessarily super important, not necessarily central to our identity as a church, not necessarily something that we have to do, but they're just things that we have been conditioned to care a lot about. And and just saying, you know what, I'm going to care a little less about that thing might actually free you from it and free you from the burden that it's placing on you and the the strain that it's placing and the stress, the anxiety that it's putting into, into you, into the congregation and and into, into ministry. Right. Sometimes it's just ourselves, right? Sometimes I ask myself the question, is anybody else losing sleep over this? Oh no, it's just me. Okay. (laughs) Okay. How, how many more sleepless nights do I want to have? But other times people caring too much about something is actually detrimental to ministry, right? It prevents us or prohibits us from moving forward. It can actually be really unhealthy and even toxic in some situations. So I think this question for us to use as a framework of can we care less about this helps us sort of identify what our priorities for ministry are. Yeah, I wonder if the question could be phrased in the way, what would happen if we didn't care about this so much, right? Would the world end? Probably not. Would we actually be healthier and happier? Probably. So our our last point is um, that our last hope for the post-pandemic church is that we begin learning to do together what we cannot do alone. And this sort of grew out of a conversation that we were having with our, uh, our, our clergy Zoom meeting this morning. And, and the question was, you know, as we look towards the post-pandemic church and, and beginning again, a lot of the things that we have left behind, although if you listen to the podcast, don't do that um, right away. Take some time to figure out what you want to start again. But recognizing that we have all sort of entered into this space of online ministry, and that's not something that we can just, you know, turn off once the pandemic is quote-unquote over, that online ministry is here to stay. And I think in another podcast talked about how how online is really our front doors as church. People aren't just going to walk up and, you know, see our, see our sign on the side of the road because they're driving by and say, oh, there's a church service there on Sunday at 1030. I'm going to go to that church. No, they're checking us out online. They're checking our web pages, our social media accounts. And, and so we've had to do all this stuff. We had to put our services online. We've had to put so much ministry online, our meetings online. And then we're going to have to go back to doing a lot of stuff in person. So we're going to be doubling our work. How are we going to do that when so many of us are operating on shoestring budgets as it is and don't have extra money, resources, people to put this all on? 
we don't have the benefits of a dedicated communications online ministry person at every congregation. Or at any congregation. I mean, I don't know any mainline congregation in Western Canada, colleagues can correct me if I'm wrong, that has a dedicated communications person outside of, like, I'm it because I'm the pastor, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, probably pretty rare if there are Very some. rare. Yeah. And very limited, right? I mean, you might have people that are, that are contracted to do a couple of hours a week or a set number of hours a month, but... Yeah, and so our church has been moving towards, our larger church has been moving towards shared ministry, and we talked a little bit before about how both you and I have experience in, in building shared ministry. And the same principles apply, I think will apply even more in the post-pandemic uh, world, is that, um, you know, being able to do, being able to work together to do the things that we are before and now all doing individually, but rather to share them, right? So, you know, your congregation has been doing some really exciting things around children's ministry, around family ministry, and doing a lot of it online, right? And so it doesn't make sense for all of us to reduplicate that, for every congregation to have an exciting, vibrant online children's ministry when we can take advantage of the one that, that you are doing at your congregation. And another church might be doing some really exciting online Bible study, and there might be some or another congregation doing some really exciting devotional stuff. We're putting on some some seminars. The Synod is putting on you know workshops and presentations, and so there's all these ways in which we can start to work together to lighten the load for clergy and for congregations, but also take advantage of each other's strengths and resources. And and it's not even you know churches in the same city. There can be churches across the country who are doing cool things, who are connected to us, and we are able to share those resources because we're online, because, you know, some of those borders that we talked about before don't exist anymore, because, because being online and valuing online connections means that we can, we can start to share. And I think pastors, in a way, have been doing that for at least a few years, if not longer, because we... I've been in Facebook groups. We've been connecting online for quite a while and sharing some of these resources, but we haven't been completely explicit about it with our congregation saying, hey, you know, there's this, I have this colleague in Vancouver who's putting on this really cool uh, online ministry. And so our congregation is going to become a part of that, right? And this is actually going to be a shared online ministry that we do now led by Pastor So-and-so and the congregation of this and that in Vancouver, because we can do that now. And it's sort of a mind-bending shift, but I think it's the only way to really to enter into some really good and, and productive and, and engaging online ministry, because we simply cannot be Lone Rangers anymore, doing it all on our own and all by ourselves and doing every congregation and every clergy and every staff doing it, reduplicating what the church down the street is doing because we all have to do it in our own buildings with our own people. Absolutely. And I think that same could be true for in-building ministry as well, especially if you're in a location where you have more than one congregation, right? And maybe it's a different, maybe the United Church down the, down the block has an excellent, you know, Bible study group that meets or a book club or whatever it is, right? Maybe they have a quilting group that you don't have. And you know that there are people who are, who are quilters, but you don't have the space or there's not enough people sharing resources and connecting people. I really don't feel like we're going to lose anything by highlighting for people where there are other places for them to connect into, because that also means that other clergy and and congregational members and community members will be doing the same with our congregation to say did you know did you know that that congregation has a vbs program every summer in the first week of july you you would really want to check it out right we don't have the capacity to do that programming so we're going to 
maybe work with the church or we're going to send our families over to that church because they can provide a level of ministry that we don't have the capacity to. Right? Our families and our volunteers. Sure. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Well, I think that's so that's 10 hopes and dreams for the post-pandemic church. That doesn't mean this is the last uh, podcast episode in this series. We'll be back again, I think, with some more hopes and dreams for the post-pandemic church next time. Or maybe something else. We're not quite sure. <laughs> Regardless, I think that's where we're going to end for today. Uh, so uh, where can people find you online? You can find me on Facebook at Courtney Reedman Parker, on my congregational's Facebook page, Messiah Lutheran Winnipeg. You can find me on Instagram at C. Reedman Parker or on Twitter at Reedman Parker. And you? I don't know if I want to share where people can find me online anymore after this week. I'm just kidding. <laughs> you can find me on my Facebook page at The Millennial Pastor. Just don't read the comments. You can find me on my blog at millennialpastor.ca. Again, don't read the comments. You can find me at my church's uh, uh, webpage, Sherwood Park Lutheran Church. Do read the comments there. And uh, and you can also find me on Twitter at Parker Eric. The Millennial Pastors podcast is made possible by a generous grant from the Manitoba Northwestern Ontario Synod, whom you can find at mnosynod.org. The Millennial Pastors podcast is written and produced by us, the Reverend Courtney Reedman Parker and the Reverend Eric Parker, with our theme song provided by Lutheran Outdoor Ministry in Alberta and the North, and all other music provided by audionautics.com. This has been a couple of iPhone pastors for a typewriter church. We will see you on the other side. Bye for now.